Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 18, verses 23 through 28. In verse 23, we, we read, after spending some time there, uh, well, where is there? Well, there is in Syrian Antioch, where the Apostle Paul went for a time of little R&R, &R, a little rest and recuperation, rest and re re recovery uh, for a period uh, ex extending from the summer of uh, the year 52 AD to the spring of 53 AD. And then he departed. So right there in one sentence, we've got the conclusion of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third missionary journey. And he went from place, from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, that would be South and South Central Asia Minor, strengthening all the disciples, that all, that is the churches that he had established throughout that region, returning to them to uh, encourage them further in, in their faith before going on to uh, new territory. But then in verses 24 through 28, Luke digresses. In order to, to bring us up to date with events in Ephesus, which was the apostle's last stop on his second journey, very brief stop, and it'll be his, his extended stop uh, for a period of uh, three years uh, on his third missionary journey. And it gives him the opportunity to talk about this man, Apollos, who has emerged as a leader in the early church and to talk about his strengths and his weaknesses, uh, those which characterize a, a servant of, of Christ, especially his ministers, but beyond that, to ordinary Christians. And it gives us the opportunity to ask the question, what does an effective servant of Christ look like? What are his or her gifts? What is his or her character, as the case may apply? And the answer that I'm going to give is under six headings. Now, you're very used to me preaching three-point sermons. I think sermons naturally fall into three points because we live in a Trinitarian universe, so of course things break into threes. So now six, well, that's two threes. So this is a double Trinitarian sermon, so to speak. All right, so point number one, an effective servant uh, is educated. Now, a Jew named uh, Apollos a native of Alexandria. Let's just pause there for a minute. Alexandria uh, was at the time the leading city of Egypt, the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, there was as many as perhaps a million Jews living in Egypt. It's named, of course, for Alexander the Great. It had the finest library in the world. It was the center of education and philosophy. And in terms of the early church, it was second in importance only to Rome itself. And we're, we're told about uh, Apollos that he was an eloquent man. NIV translates that a learned man. The commentators will re render it a man of learning or an educated man. Uh, now, we're not saying that, that uh, every useful servant needs to have a large degree of academic uh, training or education. Um, so there are a number of raw materials that 
make a devout man or woman of God. And you can have some of those raw materials and just be an out-and-out -out pagan unbeliever. But things like experience and knowledge and education um, and, and a, number, a number of other you know, personality qualities that are natural to an individual. All of these things are, so to speak, the raw materials that if you have them, they're an asset in terms of ministry. If God in his grace brings you to Christ, they become a, then, then a tool that can be used for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's what we find here with, with Apollos. He's from this, this center of learning, and he is a learned man. And education is something that we should get if we can. It doesn't qualify us for Christian service, but it has the potential to expand one's effectiveness. Over the centuries, some of the most um, blessed and used of God's servants have been highly educated. You know, Paul says there's not many mighty according to the flesh, not many noble, and so forth. But occasionally there are, and, and, and when there is such, they have a tremendous impact for the sake of the kingdom of God. For example, Paul himself, classically educated at the highest levels. That's why he's able to quote uh, Greek poets in the middle of his uh, sermon to the Athenians. Uh, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, so trained in the scripture by the leading rabbi of that day. You can move forward to Augustine, who was a professor of rhetoric, which was at the top of the academic hi hierarchy in the ancient world, who then is converted and brings all of that learning from the ancient world to bear upon uh, the presentation of Christian truth. Thomas Aquinas from the Middle Ages was able to bring together uh, all of the theology and philosophy of antiquity together with all the developments in the Middle Ages and bring them uh, to bear in his Summa Theologica, much of which is very, very valuable. Uh, Calvin was educated with the finest tools of the Renaissance and was able to do great things in part because of the level of education that he had. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had been schooled in all of the learning of the Enlightenment and was able to uh, reproduce the arguments of the skeptics and improve upon their arguments and then annihilate their arguments. Uh, Charles Hodge, a theologian we turn to often, Presbyterian, 19th century, his systematic theology in three volumes is full of the learning of antiquity and of the Middle Ages and, and of the Reformation and, and, and on into modern times. Uh, we, I think at times, are, are, are concerned about education because there's so much cynicism and skepticism in the academic world, and so we rightly are perhaps to a degree fearful of what that might mean. I think at the same time, it should be, while we, while we need to be cautious like that, at the same time, it should be our goal to produce children that are, that are educated fully to their capacity. Uh, for some, that means their education will, will, will end in high school. For others, that means college. For others, that means graduate school. And we need to be encouraging this education at the highest level so that our children and our grandchildren are able to interact with the great ideas of the day and understand their roots, where they have come from, and be in a, a, a position to be able to refute what has been said by the skeptics and the cynics and the unbelievers all throughout the centuries and in our present 
day be able to meet those with biblical answers. So education is a, is a valuable tool. Um, an effective servant Christ, in order to be one, it's, it's not necessary, but it does help uh, to be educated. Apollos was an educated man. Secondly, he was biblically competent. Continuing in, in verse 24, he was competent in the scriptures. King James and the New American Standard uh, translate uh, the word, which is dunatos, you know, our word dynamite is a, a derivative of this old Greek word. They translate it mighty. He was mighty in the scriptures. He knew his Old Testament. He knew how to give it a Christological interpretation. He knew the true meaning of the Old Testament. Uh, verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. In other words, he didn't know merely the Old Testament, but he knew the New Testament as well. He's highly educated, and not just in secular knowledge, but in biblical knowledge. He understands the Old Testament. He understands the, the message of the New Testament that was not yet can canonized, but that he understood insofar as it had been developed up to that point. His, his, his knowledge is solid, if incomplete. He doesn't understand yet the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And he's educated both in doctrine, doctrine and, and biblically, biblically competent in both doctrine and practice. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. He had the head, he had the heart as well. He's biblically competent. To be an effective servant of Christ, we need to know our Bible. We need to know the promises of the Bible and the ideals of the Bible and the themes of the Bible and the ethics of the Bible. Uh, we need to be able to quote the Bible and cite the Bible and explain the Bible and exhort from the Bible. Uh, the Bible needs to shape our convictions and our priorities and our perspective and our outlook, even when the Bible conflicts with our own preferences and our own ideas and, and our own sense of things. And we need to know the, the overall message of the Bible. How am I to know the truth about God, about humanity, about the human condition, about sin, about salvation, and the way of life for which we were designed if I don't go to the Bible? Because the Bible is the only certain source of truth for all of the above. We want, uh, we want our children to know the great books. Uh, we need to study the great books, but we also need to be the people of a book, as Christians have been called through the centuries. That is, people are primarily of one book, the one book that shapes everything else, that shapes our understanding of everything else in life, that is determining the direction of our life and the convictions that underlie the direction that our life is taking. What is determinative of those things? It's not the, not the logic of the world. It's not common sense. It's... It's not current values. It's the timeless, eternal truths that are found where? That are found in the Bible. And so to be effective servant of Christ, we must be biblically competent. The old Book of Common Prayer collect urges us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. Psalm 119 asks, how is it that we may be kept from sin? 
How is it that we might become more wise than our teachers? You know, young people tend to think they're already more wise than their teachers. But how, how do you truly become more wise than your teachers? How do you become more wise than the aged? And the answer is by meditation upon the word of God day and night. That's how we become wise in both the things of this world and, 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 and in the matters of eternity, the matters of the world to come. The effective servant of Christ, 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly divides the word of truth, or in the modern translations, handles accurately the scriptures, as the scriptures are, are shaping uh, that servant's outlook and convictions and perspective and priorities. Uh, thirdly, it says of Apollos that he was fervent in spirit. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. The word underlying our word fervent is zeo, from which we get our word zealous. It can be used of, uh, in, in its cognates in, in terms of boiling water. It means to be ardent. In other words, uh, Apollos, Apollos's piety was not cool and detached. Rather, he had a burning zeal for the things of God. Uh, he had both light and fire, both head and heart, a flame for the things of God. In the last couple of years, a, a history of the Puritans, whom we much admire, has been published, highly readable, by the way. The title of it is Hot Protestants. Now, now wasn't talking about how good-looking they were. It's, it's about the, the, the degree of zeal and fervor that was characteristic of that whole Puritan reformed movement of the 16th and of the, the 17th centuries. I think one of the legacies of the cults uh, say going back to Jonestown, Jim Jones in 1978 and the tragedy there, mass suicides and uh, Waco, Texas and David Koresh. Is, uh, there, there's this sense I think in the culture that you don't want to be too serious about religion. You don't want to get too worked up about religious things. I mean it's, a little religion is a good thing but a lot of religion is a, is a bad thing so you don't want to get too worked up about these things. You don't want to be too zealous about these things. You don't want to be too, too dogmatic about the things uh, uh, in connection with religion. Now, now ball games, that's a whole different thing. You can go completely nuts at a ball game, right? You can jump up and down and scream and shout and, and, and carry on uh, and throw things. Um, I once sat in the bleachers at Fenway Park in Boston. And we're not talking about now. We're talking about the 1970s. Total insanity. I mean, I went to Dodger Stadium growing up many times. Fenway Park, completely nuts. And they think that, people think that People sitting here in pews listening to sermons, oh, that you don't want to take that too far. You don't want to be too religious. You don't want to be too devout. You don't want to be too wrapped up in church and the life of the church and in the, uh, the, the things of God. And it was said about one of our members a few years back, that, and I, I quote, he takes his religion very seriously. That was not meant as a compliment. It was like, what's wrong with him? Why is he spending so much time at the church? Why he's spending so much time reading his Bible, studying his Bible? Uh, why, and, and, and in prayer, he, he could be doing something productive. He could be doing something more valuable. 
He could be enjoying life as opposed to being all wrapped up in, in uh, these sorts of uh, religious uh, affairs. Uh, no, Apollos is, is fervent. John Wesley said, light yourself on fire with passion for Christ and people will come from miles to watch you burn. Uh, one of my favorite Baptist preachers uh, once made the comment that a person shouting fire in a burning building has a natural eloquence. Right? When you're shouting fire, there's a, it's got the right tone. It's got the right urgency. There's, a, there's an eloquence about it. Uh, the question for us is, do we think there's a fire? Is there the threat of a fire? Is there a hell? Is there a heaven? Is there eternity? Are we rushing headlong into eternity? Is there a cliff out there that we're going to fall off one day and fall into eternity? And do we think about it at all? Are we ready for that day? I think this is what the typical person does not do and why the typical person doesn't understand enthusiasm. By the way, enthusiasm after the 17th century in England was a negative word and religionists who were too fired up about the things of God were called enthusiasts. And again, it wasn't a compliment. But if you think there's a fire, you're going to be eloquent in your warning about the fire. You're going to be urgent about that. There's going to be some fervor in that. And an effective servant of God is not going to be cool and indifferent about the things of God. There's going to be this fervor. There's going to be this urgency. There's going to be this fire in their belly. If they, if, and I, I think it's a test. Do I really believe these things or do I not believe these things? If I do believe them, there's going to be this note of fervor in us about the things of God. The effective servant feels these things deeply. Uh, fourth, he's bold. Uh, so we continue in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He's speaking boldly. Because he's zealous, he speaks with a holy boldness. He can't be quiet. He can't be still. This obviously connects directly with the preceding point. Because he is fervent, he's bold. By way of comparison, we might go to Jeremiah 20, verses 8 and 9, where Jeremiah is complaining to God about his suffering from the opposition and the persecution of those who would silence him. And he says this, verse 8, Jeremiah 20, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. Pretty negative message. He's warning them about the, the invasions that are coming that are going to destroy his nation because of their idolatry and their immorality and their injustice. So I shout violence and destruction. But, he says, the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. Uh, they reject what I'm saying. They scoff at what I'm saying. They mock me and ridicule me. And that just, that just begins to pile up. That just begins to overcome. And he's discouraged by it. He's despondent because of it. He's downcast because of the, 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 the troubles that he's endure, enduring. But he goes on and he says, this is verse 9, Jeremiah 20, If I say, I will not mention him, that is God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart 
as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. You see what he's saying? The truth of God, the things of God are like a fire within him. He tries to hold it down. He tries to suppress it. He tries to cool the flame, but he can't do it. There's such an urgency. There's such a burden. And so he boldly continues. Poor Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he ends up pitched into a cistern where he, he comes close to death. But he, he can't restrain himself. He can't contain himself. He's bold to continue that which he has been commissioned to do. There's a holy boldness about the effective servant of Christ. Uh, you may have heard me tell this story before, but I don't have a lot of stories, so I have to repeat. So I was, when I was a freshman in college, I was on my way to a Bible study, and I was carrying a Bible and trying to hide it as I did. And a, a person that became a good friend of mine, who I knew to be a world-class, world-record-holding swimmer, got on the elevator with me, and he said to me, where are you going? And I mumbled to a Bible study. And he said, what? And so I said, I'm going to a Bible study. And he said, can I go with you? Um, I was embarrassed. I was even ashamed of my shame at what I was doing. But it was a turning point in my life for me. And, and I have never been as hesitant since then to just speak forth light, rightly, and boldly when we're going about the business of the things of God and invite people to come. Invite the people that are, 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 are serving you in the restaurants. That happened in the restaurant we visited just last night where our, our waitress was invited to come to church here. I hope she'll come someday soon. When, when you're working out at one of these uh, workout facilities, get to know the people around you and just ask them where do they go to church and invite them to come. There's a, there's a boldness about the people of God that arises out of their fervor. Number five, uh, he's teachable. Uh, go back up to verse 25 where we are told that he only knew of the baptism of John. Uh, then in verse 26, when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, uh, he began to do that. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is impressive. Consider what we said about uh, Paulus up to this point. He's educated. He's eloquent. He's knowledgeable. He knows his Bible. But he only knows about the baptism of John. He, that's a preparatory rite that was pointing to Christ. It was not an acknowledgment of Jesus as Savior and Lord. It was not an acknowledgment of the poured out blood of Christ by which we are justified or the poured out spirit of Christ by which we are sanctified. It was not the, John's baptism was not the rite of admission into the Christian church. And what Apollos does is he humbly submits to the instruction primarily from a woman. Now, we're talking about the ancient world. This is not after, you know, decades of women's rights movement. This is the ancient world where women were just barely above slaves. And here's this eloquent, educated man, and he's submitting to being instructed by Priscilla, whose name is before her husband, prime, we, we, we can guess, is because she was the one who knew the things of God. She was the more devout of the two. So she's taking the lead. In privately, notice it says that uh, they took him aside 
and privately and discreetly taught him. Apollos is willing to be taught. He knows he doesn't have all the answers. He knows he doesn't have it, doesn't know it all. An effective servant of Christ will be always learning, will be open to that which he does not know. Like the, like the Bereans of, of Acts 17.11 uh, that, that are searching the scriptures daily to see if such things are true. You know, we talk about uh, the problem of being sophomoric. What's that mean? Well, young people tend to think that they know it all. Old people have another problem. They think they've seen it all. Mark Twain recalled that when he was 14 years old, he, w- he could barely stand to be around his father because his father was, was so horribly ignorant. And then seven years later, when he was 21, he was amazed to see how much he had learned. Yeah, we think we, we, we do have a problem, don't we? We don't, we don't want to be instructed. You know, I went off to, to seminary in England, Trinity College in Bristol, and I thought I knew a lot. In fact, you know, I, I really thought that I, I knew just about all there was to know. I mean, compared to the fellow students as an undergraduate, I mean, I was the theologian. I was the Bible scholar in the circle that I ran around with. I knew a lot of stuff. After one year at seminary, I came home and I just knew one thing. And that one thing was I didn't know anything. In fact, I was just absolutely overwhelmed to a devastating degree with the amount that I needed to know and the, and the, 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 the sheer vacuum of ignorance that, that characterized my, my, my own knowledge at that, at that point. In fact, uh, that... that Learning is a lifetime experience. When I was 50 years old, I started heading off to Erskine, just south of Greenville, in order to sit at the feet of Hughes Old. By 50 years old, you're supposed to have it all wrapped up, right? You're supposed to know everything by then. No, there was the opportunity to study under a world-class scholar who knew more about worship and the history of worship, I believe, than the whole rest of the world combined. And all I wanted to do was sit at his feet and learn from him and try to try to squeeze out of his giant brain all that he knew and sitting there pen in hand trying to write down everything that he had to say no a servant of god is going to be teachable they're going to be they're going to be open look knowledge can puff up and that's a problem but knowledge of itself is a, is, a, is a good thing, and it's the thing to be pursued. Uh, but it can puff up to where we are not teachable. So maybe because I, I, I really know uh, philosophy, I'm not open to what the Bible has to say. Or maybe it's because I know psychology, uh, that uh, it invalidates what's in the Bible, or because I know sociology, or I don't see the agreement between what I think of as science and what the Bible has to say. See, we can become puffed up. We can even become puffed up by what, by what we've learned in what's called the school of hard knocks, right? My experience in life uh, 
means that the, these trivialities and the simplistic things that we find in the Bible, they don't apply to me. They're not true for me. They don't, they don't move me. They don't engage me. No, knowledge can puff up. And, and we need to be aware of that and always be teachable. It is a vital quality, characteristic of an effective servant of Christ. And then lastly, uh, fruitfulness. Verse 27. And he wished to cross to Achaia, which is another way of speaking of Greece and specifically the area around Corinth. So he's on his way to Corinth. Uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Why would they write a letter to welcome him? Because he'd been effective in service, in his service uh, where he was, there in Ephesus. He'd been effective. He'd, he'd seen fruit. And so they're, they're in a position to commend him, and they do commend him. Because the valuable things he had been teaching in, 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 in Ephesus, he, he now could impart those same things in, in Corinth. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Greatly helped. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, which is, which is the point of debate with the Jews in the synagogues. Is Jesus the promised Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the promised one? And what we're being told is that Apollos was very effective. All, his, all of his education, his, his schooling in, in the, the, the grammar and, and the logic and the rhetoric of antiquity, all of that and all of his knowledge of the Bible, it all came to bear in his ministry, first in Ephesus, then in Corinth, and in battling with and conflicting and debating uh, with those who were denying that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. He effectively uh, refuted them. And, 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 and so his ministry was a, was a fruitful ministry. This is going to be characteristic of the effective servant of Christ. He's going to, he or she is going to make a difference. People are going to be drawn to Christ by them. They're going to be encouraged in Christ by them. There will be some fruit. They will make a difference. They will have an impact. Even the seemingly weakest of believers, the most infirm and incapacitated, will make a difference by the witness of their life and faith and words. An effective servant of Christ will bear fruit. You live the Christian life, you speak the Christian life, you speak Christian truth, there will be fruit. You will make a difference. You will make an impact on those who are around you. You'll be like a light that shines in the darkness. You'll be like a city set upon a hill, radiating the love of God and drawing people to Christ. Uh, for these things uh, we pray and, and, and seek, uh, that we will be like this Apollos, that we'll have these, uh, uh, increasingly, the, these, these uh, uh, characteristics of the effective servant of Christ, uh, so that we might have a fruit to show for it in the days ahead. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're, we're thankful that you raise up these, uh, these people like Apollos, and you've been raising them up all through the centuries, uh, from uh, the great intellectuals to the simple, humble, ordinary Christian. You've been raising 
raising up servants of yours, humble servants, teachable servants, bold servants, fervent servants, biblically knowledgeable servants. Though that we would be fruitful in our time, oh Lord, making an impact, making a difference upon our community and, uh, and on our friends and loved ones and, and those who are around us. We pray that there would be no mistake about our lives, that the people we work with, the people we play with, the people we live with, would know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, a thing they can tell uh, by the character of our lives. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.